With Hashem's assistance, we are learning Baba Mitzvah, Daf Lamar Aleph, page 31. We're going to begin 14 lines in at the two dots. Before we do begin, I'd like to give you a little bit of a background to help us understand better the Gemara. And the background is like this. We're going to speak about a donkey and a cat that were found in different places. And they were also doing different things. And depending on the things that they were doing and the places that they were found, it will have an indication as far as whether this is a lost object, a lost animal, or if it's not a lost animal. And the four different factors are as follows. If it's roya, if it's grazing, so then that's an indication that it's not lost. If it's ruts, if it's running, that's an indication that it is lost. If it's Bein HaKaramim, if it's found between the vineyard, so that's an indication that it's lost. And if it's found Baderech, on the regular path, that's an indication that it's not lost. Now we have different combinations of all of these different cases, and we'll see that there's different indications from the Mishnah as to what the status of such an animal is going to be in all of the different circumstances. Let's begin. Matzach we said if you find a donkey or a cow. Hagu Vakasha. Sigmar says we actually have a contradiction internally in the Mishnah itself. Amris, the first thing that we said is like this. If you find a donkey or a cow that are grazing on the path, so here you have two positive things. You have grazing and you have it on the regular path. So the Mishnah says that's not considered a lost object, a lost animal. So the indication is it's because you have two positive things. That's why it's not considered lost. But let's say you have one positive thing and one negative thing. If it's running on the path, so if it's running, that's a negative thing, because that's an indication that it's lost. But it has a positive thing because it's on the regular path. Let's say it's grazing between the vineyards. So here again you have a positive thing, the fact that it's grazing that indicates that it's not lost, but it's between the vineyards that indicates that it is lost. But what's the indication? The indication is that if you have one and one, one positive factor, one negative factor, it's only if you have the two positive factors that it's considered that it's not lost. But if you have one and one, it is considered lost. Aim is safe, but what does it say in the end of the Mishnah? Let's you have a donkey and its saddle is upside down. Or you have a cow running between the vineyards. So here where you have two negative factors, that's when it's considered a lost animal. Only then is it considered lost. But the indication is if you would have one and one, a positive thing, which is that it's on the regular path, a negative thing, which is that it's running. Or if you would have it grazing between the vineyards, you have again one and one. The indication is that only if you have two negative factors is it considered lost. But here, it's not considered lost. Amar so Abayi explains as follows. Each case will indicate something for us about the other case. When it says the case where it's grazing on the regular path, that that's not considered a lost animal. It's going to be the same thing for grazing between the vineyards, meaning the, the main factor that indicates to us that it's not lost is the fact that it's grazing. And then when we say that if it's running between the vineyards, it is considered a lost. So then the determining factor is the fact that it's running. And it will be the same thing if it's running on the regular path, it's also going to be considered lost. So Rav says to him, hold on a second. If indeed we're going to say that we're going to figure out from the Mishnah's cases what's going to be in the other cases, so we should have said the lenient cases and then we would have known, we would have been able to figure out logically 
what's going to be in the more stringent cases, as follows. Let it say that if it's running on the path, that it's considered a lost object, and this despite the fact that it's on the regular path. And then we will know certainly that this will be true if it's running between the vineyards where you have two negative things, certainly it's going to be considered lost. And let it say the case where it's grazing between the vineyards, that that's not considered lost. So despite the fact that it has a negative thing going for it, which is that it's between the vineyards, nevertheless it's not considered lost because the main factor is that it's grazing. And then I would certainly know that it's true if it's grazing and it's on the regular path, that there where you have two positive things, certainly it's not lost. So Rav says, clearly your understanding of Abayah is incorrect. And the truth is, the two different diukim, the two different inferences that we made, they're both true. Meaning, we had said that if it's running on a path, so one part of the Mishnah indicates that it's indeed considered lost. But in the other part of the Mishnah, we said the indication was that it's not considered lost. So Rav says, This contradiction is not a contradiction. You know why? It depends which way the animal is running. If it's running outside, if it's running towards the wilderness, so that then it's considered lost. Then you'll have to save it and return it to its owner. But if it's running towards the city, if it's running inwards, so then it's not considered lost. And you can assume that in fact it's going to go back to its owner. And therefore you don't have to return it. And the contradiction that we had, that one part of the mission indicated that if it's grazing between the vineyards, it's considered lost. The other part indicated that no, it's not considered lost. So that's not a problem. It's not a contradiction. It depends what we're talking about. There's two possible losses that we can discuss. The animal itself, but we could also discuss the loss that's going to happen when the animal destroys someone's property. When do we say that if it's grazing on the path, it's not considered a lost animal? And the indication is that if it's grazing between the vineyards, it is considered lost. But That's when we're discussing that you have to take it out of there, not because the animal is lost, but because it's going to destroy a piece of land. It's going to destroy someone's property. Therefore, you have to take it out. And when do we say that if it's running between the vineyards, it's going to be considered lost? But if it's grazing between the vineyards, it's not considered lost, but that's in regards to the animal itself. Because if an animal is running between the vineyards, it's very likely that it's going to get hurt, it's going to trip, it's going to break a leg, let's say. But if it's just grazing between the vineyards, it's not going to get hurt, and therefore you don't have to save the animal and take it out of that place. So the Gemara says, hold on a second. In regards to a case where it's grazing between the vineyards, okay, granted, that animal is not going to get hurt. But still, you should have to take it out because it's going to destroy someone's piece of land. Meaning, how do you have a case where there's no problem of leaving it there? So the Gemara answers, we could say it's talking about a case of a kuthite. Because since it's a non-Jew, therefore there's no obligation to prevent his loss. Why don't we say that you should take it out of there anyway because the animal itself is going to get hurt or destroyed? Why? Maybe the Kuthite is going to get so upset that this animal is destroying his property, they're going to end up killing the animal. The Gemara answers that we're talking about a place that they don't kill your animal until they first forewarn you. So the Gemara says, wait a second, maybe you should have to return it anyway. Maybe they had already warned the person who owns this animal, and therefore you have to save the animal from getting killed. The one says, hold on a second, if indeed they had warned this person, and the guy wasn't careful to make sure it didn't go into his property, then it's considered that the owner of this cow has thrown it away with his own two hands. We continue. We said in the Mishnah that if you return that animal, the animal ran away. You return the animal, the animal ran away. Even a hundred times. 
You gotta return it. There was a certain sage who said to Rav as follows, Maybe actually we should learn out of the verse as follows. It says you should return it. That's saying you should do it one time. And when it says it a second time, it's saying you have to return it a second time. Who says you have to return it so many times? Amar lays, so Rav responded as follows, Hashiv, when the verse says you should return it, even a hundred times, all that has to say in the Torah is one time, you should return it, and the indication is, you have to return it, it doesn't matter how many times it gets lost, you always have to return it. And when the verse said to Shivim, that you shall return it, it says it a second time, so it's going to teach you as follows, all I would have known is that it's permitted to return it to his house. How do I know that I can even return it to his garden, or to his broken down house? That's why the verse says, you shall return it a second time, teaching you that you can return it to any place that belongs to him. So Gemara says, hold on a second, what exactly is this place that you're returning it to? If it's a place that's properly watched, meaning it's an enclosed area that it's not going to get lost again, obviously, of course you can return it to that place. And if it's a place that's not properly watched, how can you return it there? It will get lost again, you haven't properly returned it. So Gemara says, really, I'll tell you, the case is talking about where you're allowed to return it to a place that's completely enclosed. And this is what it's coming to teach you. What's the novelty? That when you return it, the owners do not have to be aware of the fact that you're returning it. And this novelty is like Rabbi Lazar, the Amr who says, Generally speaking, when you return something, for example, if let's say you've stolen something, so the person that you're returning it to has to know that you have returned it. Except in regards to returning a lost object. Because the Torah says numerous times that you have to return it. Therefore, it's coming to teach you that no matter how you return it, even if the owners are not aware of the fact that you have returned it, it's going to be good enough. Now the Gemara continues with another case which is similar. We find that the Mishnah says in regards to Shiluah HaKen, it's a special mitzvah commandment that if somebody wants to take the chicks or the eggs and the mother bird is there, there's an obligation to send away the mother bird. And the Mishnah says that you have to do this if it comes back again four or five times or as many times as necessary. So again we have a similar type of question. Shalech Tishalach, this is the verse says you shall send it. It says it twice. Why don't we say that when it says that you shall send it, it's saying you should do it one time. And when it says it a second time, the verse is saying that you should do it a second time. Who says that you have to do it numerous times, even past two? So the response was as follows. When it says again, when it says you should send it, so the indication is no matter how many times it's necessary to do it, you have to do it. So when it says a second time that you should send it, it's coming to teach you as follows. You might have thought that there's only an obligation to send away the mother bird if you're taking it for some reason that's for your own purposes. Let's say you're taking the baby bird because you need it for a certain command. For instance, part of the purification process of a mitzorah, a leprous person involved, the Torah commands that there has to be two birds that are taken. So let's say you're doing it over there. You might have thought that there's no obligation to send away the mother bird. That's why the verse has to tell you that you have to send it away a second time. It's teaching you that no matter what case it is, no matter why you're taking that bird, you still have an obligation to send off the mother bird. A certain sage said the following statement to Rav, Why don't we say that when the Torah says that one is obligated to give rebuke if you see somebody doing something, obviously it has to be done sensitively, but if one sees someone else doing an Avera, a transgression, there's an obligation to give them rebuke. And the verse says it doubly, You shall rebuke, you shall rebuke. So maybe the first time it says it is saying that you have to do it once. When it says it a second time, it means there's an obligation to do it a second time. Amr lei, hai chayach afilu mea pa'amim. 
So Rav's response was no. When it says you shall give rebuke and correct somebody and guide them and help them to do the right thing, that means even a hundred times. If they keep going back, lapsing back into that negative behavior, so you have to help them up to a hundred times. Mashma, that's the indication of the word. So when the verse says a second time, you shall rebuke them, what is it saying it doubly? So it's coming to teach you as follows. All I would know is that if a teacher sees his student doing something wrong, there's an obligation on the teacher to correct his student. How do we know that there's an obligation on the student? If he sees his teacher doing something wrong, that there's an obligation as well to correct him? That's why the verse says, It says it doubly, you shall give rebuke, you shall give rebuke to teach you. No matter what, there's always an obligation, even a student giving a correction to his teacher. We find another place in the Torah where it says this double language. It says in regards to helping somebody, let's say a person is an animal, is buckling on their heavy load. There's an obligation on a person who sees that to help him out, to help out the animal, to help out the owner. So the reason that it says it a second time is coming to teach you as follows. You might think that the only time that there's an obligation on the person who sees this is only if the owner is there along with him. Meaning, the owner is helping the person who's helping him. How do we know that if let's say the person who owns the animal is too weak or too old to be able to help remove the load from the animal how do you know that there's an obligation on the person who sees it nevertheless to help out Tamalomar so the verse says it says it doubly to tell you that no matter what in any event there's an obligation on the person who sees it to help out now the one brings another verse that we see in this verse a double language and it's in regards to somebody who needs help not because his animal's buckling under a load but rather he needs help getting the load onto the animal properly. So the verse is Hakim Takim you shall help him pick it up you shall help him pick it up Imoy along with him Ainli Ela Ba'alav Imoy So why does it say the second time in the verse it's coming to teach you as follows you might think that the only time that you have an obligation to help is only if the owner is helping you Shein Ba'alav Imoy Minayin How do we know that if the owner cannot help you because he's old or he's weak how do you know that you still have an obligation Tamad Lomar That's so the verse says, Hakim Takim. It says it a second time, you shall help pick it up, you shall help pick it up. Mikal Makim, teaching you that no matter what case we're talking about, there's going to be an obligation to help him out. Now the Gemara says, Why is it necessary to see the same idea in regards to both helping somebody get a load off of his animal that's buckling, and also in regards to helping somebody get a load onto his animal? In both cases, there seems to be a necessity to say that you have to help him out, even if he can't help you. Why does it have to say it both times? Because if the Torah had written it only in regards to taking the load off of the animal, have I mean, you know why you would think that there's an obligation to do it? Because there's another factor here, and that is that there's the pain of the animal itself, as well as the fact that there's a loss of money because the animal is getting ruined. But in regards to helping out the guy get the load onto his animal, that there's no prevention of pain to the animal by putting a load on its back, and there's also no loss of money that's being prevented. You might think that in such a case, there's no obligation to help him if he can't help you. And that's why the Torah had to write it in both cases. And if the Torah had only written it in regards to helping somebody get a load onto the animal, so we would have said that over there there's an obligation to do it even without the person helping you. Why? Because you're going to get paid for that. But in regards to taking a load off of an animal where that's done for free, the Torah does not obligate the person who you're helping out to pay you. So you might have thought that over there there's no obligation to do it if he's not helping you as well. That's what the Chiddush is, that's the novelty, and that's why it's necessary to say it in both cases. Now the Gemara says, hold on a second, Lord Rabbi Shimon, however, according to Rabbi Shimon, the Amar Afti Ina Bechinam, he holds that in fact, if you're going to help somebody put a load onto his animal, he does not have to pay you. Michael Neymar, so what are you going to say according to him? What's the novelty? Why can't the Torah just have written in regards to Ti'ina, where you're helping somebody to get the load onto the back of the animal? There you have to do it, even if he's not helping you out. So, and certainly we would say that that's true in regards to the case where you're taking it off of the animal. 
The Gemara answers, According to Rabbi Shimon, there's a different reason why we have to say both of these verses. And that is because the verses themselves are unclear as to which verse is speaking about helping get a load off of the animal and which verse is speaking about getting a load onto the animal. So if the Torah had only written one of them, I would have thought that that verse is speaking specifically about helping get a load off of the animal. And only over there is there an obligation to help him out even if he's not helping you. But I wouldn't have known that that's also true in regards to Te'ina, helping get the load onto the animal's back. So that's why the Torah had to write both verses and teach you in both places that there's an obligation to help him even if he's not helping you. This way we know that this concept applies both in the case of Prika, where you're helping the animal take off its load, and both in the case of Te'ina, where you're helping get the load onto the animal's back. Now the Gemara asks, Why is it necessary for the Torah to teach us a concept of helping somebody out, if he's about to have a loss in regards to Prika, taking off the heavy load off an animal? So there, there could be a loss because the animal could buckle under the load and become damaged. So we see already from that, that there's an obligation to help somebody out if someone's about to lose money, to lose value from his property. So why does the Torah also have to write that there's a concept of returning a lost object? We should already see it from the concept of taking off a heavy load. The Gemara answers, Tzrichi. We need to say in both cases, of If the Torah had only taught us the concept of taking off a load and putting on a load, that there's an obligation to help. So there, there's two parties who have anguish. One is the owner of the animal, and one is the animal itself. But if let's say the animal was lost, So there, the owner has anguish. But the animal doesn't have any anguish. So there we would say that there's no obligation until you have both the anguish of the person, the owner, as well as the animal itself. That's why the Torah had to teach us this concept of both. And let's say the Torah had only written this, that there's an obligation to return a lost object. If it had only written it like that, we wouldn't have known that there's an obligation in regards to Prika, taking off a load or putting on a load. Because when we're talking about a lost object, so the owner isn't there at all. We turn to Lama Alpha and Beit's page 31b. But in the case of loading and unloading, there the owner is there. So you might think there's no obligation for you to help. Let him go and hire somebody to help him out. So, that's why the Torah says, say, no, there is an obligation for you to help him out, in fact. Now the Gemara continues with another case where we see a double language in the Torah. The verse says that if someone strikes someone else, kills someone else, there's an obligation to kill him. We might think that the only way that it's permissible to kill this guy who is liable for death is only in the way that's prescribed by the Torah, which is through Saif, through the sword. How do we know that if, let's say, for some reason you cannot kill him with the sword, but rather you have some other method of killing and that's necessary. For example, Rashi says, let's say the guy had been sentenced to death, but he gets on a boat and he's rowing away, and he's going to escape, but you can still kill him by shooting an arrow at him. So how do you know that there's an obligation to do that, and in fact, you fulfilled the verse, Tamalomer, that's what the verse says, Mois yumos. he shall die, he shall die. It says it doubly. Why? I'm teaching you that no matter how you have to kill him, if for whatever reason you can't do exactly what's prescribed by the Torah, then it's okay. In fact, it is the proper thing to do. Now the Gemara has a similar type of conversation in regards to a different topic, and that is Irhani Dachas, a city that's full of idolaters, so the Torah tells us there's an obligation to completely destroy all the inhabitants, destroy the city completely. So it says like this, Hake Sake, you shall strike, you shall strike. So it says again doubly, All we know is that it's permitted to strike them with the way that's prescribed in the Torah. How do we know that for whatever reason you can't use the prescribed method of the Torah, so then you can destroy them in any way that's necessary. Lomar, that's what the verse says. Hake sake, you shall strike, you shall strike, and teaching you that you can do it in whatever way is necessary. 
The Gemara again continues with another similar type of conversation, and here we're speaking about the concept of collateral. If Reuven lends Shimon money, and Shimon wants to give him collateral in order to guarantee the loan, so let's say Shimon, he gives him his pajamas. That's all he has, so he gives him his pajamas. So the Torah says that there's an obligation on Reuven, who has lent the money, when it comes nighttime, every night, there's an obligation on him to return the pajamas so they can sleep in them, and then come back in the morning and take the pajamas again as collateral. So the verse says like this, Hashiv Tashiv, you shall return, you shall return. Again, it says it in a double language. What's it coming to teach us? All we would think is that there's an obligation to return it if the collateral was given over with the position of the courts. But let's say that it was not given over with the permission of the courts. Let's say it was just given over personally, Talmud Lomar. So how do we know that there's an obligation to return it? That's why it says, You shall return, you shall return. And this is teaching you that no matter what the circumstance is, there's still an obligation to return it when he needs it. So now, that was a verse in Deuteronomy. We have another similar verse in Shemos, in Exodus. It says as follows, Chavoyl tachvoyl. Again, the Torah says that there's an obligation to return something that was taken as collateral. Again, we have a similar type of thought. You might think that there's only an obligation to return it if it was taken with the permission of the courts. How do you know that if you took it without the permission of the courts, there will still be an obligation for you to return it at night, or when he needs it? That's what the verse says. Chavoyl tachvoyl. You shall return it, you shall return it. Mikal Makim is teaching you that no matter what, in all circumstances, Circumstances, there's an obligation to return it. So the Gemara asks the obvious question: Why is it necessary for the Torah to write this concept twice? So the Gemara says: One verse is coming to teach you that if it's something that he normally wears in the daytime that he gave you as collateral, that there's an obligation to return it for the daytime. One is coming to teach you if it's a garment that he usually wears at night, there's an obligation to return it for the nighttime. The Gemara again brings down another verse where we see this double language. It says, you shall open your hand, you shall open your hand. This is in reference to the concept of charity. So why does it say in this double language? Because you would have thought that there's only obligation in regards to the poor people of your city. How do we know that this applies? That there's an obligation to give charity even to a poor person in another city as well? So from the fact that the Torah says this double language, you shall open your hand, you shall open your hand, this is teaching you that in any event, in all cases, the obligation of charity applies equally. The Gemara again brings another verse. Nasein titain. The verse says, "You shall give, you shall give." Again, it's speaking about charity. It says it doubly. Inly elamatana meruba. So it's coming to teach us as follows. You might think that there's an only only an obligation to give a large gift. Matana muetes minayin. How do we know that if a person can't give a large gift, he should still give a smaller gift according to his means? That's what the verse says. You shall give, you shall give, teaching us that there's an obligation to give charity even when a person can only afford to give less. The Gemara brings another puzzle. In regards to someone who's freeing his slave. So the Torah said that there's an obligation to give him a bonus, a monetary bonus as he's leaving. So why does it say it in a double way again? It's coming to teach you as follows. You might think that only if the house saw blessings because of the slave, then you would give him a bonus. Let's say the house did not see any blessings because of the slave. How do you know that there still is an obligation to give him a bonus? That's what the verse says. It says it doubly to teach you that you're going to give him a bonus in all events. He says that only if there was indeed blessings do you give him this bonus. But he says if there were no blessings on the house, there's no obligation to give him this bonus. So why does it say it this extra word? According to Rabbi Nazari, he holds that even though it says this double language, so it's not going to teach you anything extra, but rather the Torah is just talking the normal way that people talk. And in Lashon HaKadosh, the holy language that the Torah was written in, so when they used to talk, so they used to say this double language perhaps as a means of emphasizing something, but in any event, that was the normal way to speak. So according to him, there wouldn't be anything to learn out from the extra double language that the Torah had used. Now the Gemara brings the final verse that we're going to discuss where we see that there's a double language. Ha'avei taviteno. The verse tells us that if a person does not want to 
take charity, but rather he wants to borrow money from you. So the verse requires that you give him money. So what's the understanding why he says it in this double way? It's saying as follows. You might think that if he doesn't have money and he doesn't want to take charity, then the Torah says, give it to him in a way which is lending to him. Let's say he has money of his own, but he wants to use you, he wants to borrow from you to start up his new business. How do we know that there's an obligation to lend him as well? That's why the verse says is doubly, there's an obligation to lend to him in any event. Now the Gemara says, There's a sheet which is Rib Shimon who holds that if he has money and he wants to borrow from you, you don't have an obligation to lend him money. So according to him, why does it have to say this doubly? The Gemara answers, According to Rib Shimon too, we will say that when the Torah says this double language, it's not going to teach you anything in particular, but rather the Torah is just speaking in the normal way that people speak. The Gemara continues, how you battle sell. We said in the Mishnah that if somebody, when he was returning a lost object, so if he wouldn't have returned it, he would have been making a certain amount of money, let's say $100. So, sell us. We can't say to the person he's returning it to, give me that $100. All he can get is the regular amount that a person who's a day worker would be paid, which might only be $10 or $25. And the explanation of this, as Rashi explained in the Mishnah, is that since he's doing a lighter amount of work now, so therefore he doesn't get paid the full amount if he would have been doing that more difficult work. So Tana, we learned in the Brisa, Noisin Leschari Kipayel Bantel. The Brisa says that he gets paid like a worker who's not working. The Brisa says, My Kipayel Bantel, what does it mean exactly that he's getting paid like a worker who's not working? He is doing something. He's involved in returning the lost object. Amar Abai, so Abai explains as follows. Kipayel Bantel shall oisim alacha de batamina. He gets paid as follows. We figure out, listen, if he would be doing that heavy manual labor instead of returning this lost object. So he would have been making $100. Now, if you would ask somebody who's doing that work, what would he be willing to take to do a lighter amount of work? For instance, like returning a lost object. What would he be willing to take in place of that $100? That's how we determine the amount that he's going to get for indeed returning this lost object. The Gemara continues with another quote from the Mishnah, Yechem Bezdin Masnevifnein. We said that even though ordinarily he can't take the full amount of money that he would have been making if he wasn't returning the lost object, however, if he goes in front of a court and says to them, listen, I'm not going to return this object unless I'm going to get the full amount of money that I'm supposed to be getting, so then he can make such a condition in front of the courts and indeed they will force the person who's receiving his object back to pay him the full amount. Now the Gemara brings a story. Isser Virav Safra, a certain man named Isser, and Rav Safra of it Iska Bahadi Hadadi, they did a business deal together. Azar Rav Safra, Rav Safra went and he split up the business deal, meaning he figured out how much the value of the item was and he split it up for himself and to give the other person his half without the awareness of Isser, of this guy. He did it in front of two witnesses. So they brought this case in front of Rabbi Baravuna because ordinarily there's an obligation on whoever has a business deal together if they want to split up the money, the value, so it's necessary to be done in front of both of them to make sure that everyone gets what they're really supposed to get. So they brought this case in front of Rabbi Baravuna so says, He says, You needed a court of three people. Bring that court of three people. If you don't have that, it's not a proper splitting. Or another possibility, Bring two out of those three who are part of the court. Another possibility, Bring two witnesses, that you had split up the money in front of a court. So basically, Rav Safra was being put on the line. He did the wrong thing. So Rav Safra says to Rabbi Barafuna, Where do you know that this is true? How do you know that you need to do it in front of three? It's not enough to do it in front of two. So he says to him, Now we have the Mishnah. Then in regards to somebody who's returning a lost object, he wants to get the full amount of his money, so he can do it in front of a court. So he can make such a condition in front of them. If there is no court to do it in front of, so then what does he do? He doesn't return the lost object. He continues doing his work, so he doesn't lose out. In any event, what we see here is that there's an obligation to do it in front of three people. Amr Leisar of Safra says, 
them, hold on a second. Me dummy, what's the comparison? Over there in that case where someone's returning something, you're taking away money from the person who's being returned to and giving it to the guy who returned the object. So over there, it's necessary to have a court. However, in our case, listen, I'm taking my own money and I'm giving him his money. All we're doing is clarifying exactly how much money each one is getting. I'm not taking anything away from him and therefore it should be enough to have two people. And I'll even prove that this is true. Now we have a Mishnah. We find that in regards to a widow who's being supported by orphans, by the orphans of her husband. So she has the rights to take the food that she's supposed to get and sell it without coming in front of the courts. And we trust her that she's not going to undersell and get too little value for that stuff. So there can be done without a court. So so too over here, we should be able to trust Rav Safra. Was it not stated in regards to that case? Rav Yosef Bar Yomi said, that when we say that a widow doesn't need a court, it means she doesn't need a court of experts, but she does need at least a court, at least three people, regular people. Therefore, it's not enough to do it in front of two in that case, and in your case as well, it wasn't enough to do it in front of two.